0: Letter 3. You have noticed that the human being is a curiosity. In times past he has had, and worn out and flung away, hundreds and hundreds of religions. Today he has hundreds and hundreds of religions, and launches not fewer than three new ones every year. I could enlarge that number and still be within the facts one of his principal religions is called the Christian. A sketch of it will interest you. It is set forth in detail in a book containing two million words called the Old and New Testaments. Also, it has another name, the Word of God, for the Christian thinks every word of it was dictated by God, the one I have been speaking of. It is full of interest, it has noble poetry in it, and some clever fables, and some blood-drenched history, and some good morals, and a wealth of obscenity, and upwards of a thousand lies. This Bible is built mainly out of the fragments of older Bibles that had their day and crumbled to ruin, so it noticeably lacks in originality, necessarily. Its three or four most imposing and impressive events all happened in earlier Bibles, and its best precepts and rules of conduct came also from those Bibles. There are only two new things in it, hell for one and that singular heaven I have told you about. What shall we do? If we believe with these people that their God invented these cruel things, we slander him. If we believe that these people invented them themselves, we slander them. It is an unpleasant dilemma in either case, for neither of these parties has done us any harm. For the sake of tranquility, let us take a side. Let us join forces with the people and put the whole ungracious burden upon him, heaven, hell, Bible, and all. It does not seem right. It does not seem fair. And yet, when you consider that heaven and how crushingly charged it is with everything that is repulsive to a human being, how can we believe a human being invented it? And when I come to tell you about hell, the strain will be greater still, and you will be likely to say, No, a man would not provide that place for either himself or anybody else. He simply couldn't. That innocent Bible tells about the creation. Of what? The universe? Yes, the universe. In six days, God did it. He did not call it the universe. That name is modern. His whole attention was upon this world. He constructed it in five days. And then it took him only one day to make 20 million suns and 80 million planets. What were they for, according to his idea? To furnish light for this little toy world. That was his whole purpose. He had no other. One of the 20 million suns, the smallest one, was to light it in the daytime. The rest were to help one of the universe's countless moons modify the darkness of its nights. It is quite manifest that he believed his fresh-made skies were diamond sown with those myriads of twinkling stars the moment his first day's sun sank below the horizon, whereas, in fact, not a single star winked in that black vault until three years and a half after that memorable week's formidable industries had been completed. Footnote. It takes the light of the nearest star, 61 Cygni. Three and a half years to come to the Earth, traveling at the rate of 186,000 miles per second. Arcturus had been shining 200 years before it was visible from the Earth. Remoter stars gradually became visible after thousands and thousands of years. The Editor, M.T. Then one star appeared all solitary and alone and began to blink. Three years later another one appeared. The two blinked together for more than four years before a third joined them. At the end of the first hundred years there were not yet twenty-five stars twinkling in the wide wastes of those gloomy skies. At the end of a thousand years not enough stars were yet visible to make a show. At the end of a million years only half the present array had sent their light over the telescopic frontiers, and it took another million for the rest to follow suit. As the vulgar phrase goes, there being at that time no telescope, their advent was not observed. For three hundred years now, the Christian astronomer has known that his deity didn't make the stars in those tremendous six days, but the Christian astronomer does not enlarge upon that detail, neither does the priest. In his book, God is eloquent in his praises of his mighty works and calls them by the largest names he can find, thus indicating that he has a strong and just admiration of magnitudes. Yet he made those millions of prodigious suns to light this wee little orb instead of appointing this orb's little son to dance attendance upon them. He mentions Arcturus in his book. You remember Arcturus. We went there once. It is one of this Earth's night lamps. That giant globe, which is 50,000 times as large as this Earth's sun and compares with it as a melon compares with a cathedral. However, the Sunday school still teaches the child that Arcturus was created to help light this Earth, and the child grows up and continues to believe it long after he has found out that the probabilities are against its being so. According to the book and its servants, the universe is only 6,000 years old. It is only within the last hundred years that studious inquiring minds have found out that it is nearer a hundred million. During the six days God created man and the other animals. He made a man and a woman, and placed them in a pleasant garden along with the other creatures. They all lived together there in harmony and contentment and blooming youth for some time. Then trouble came. God had warned the man and the woman that they must not eat the fruit of a certain tree, and he added a most strange remark. He said that If they ate of it, they should surely die. Strange for the reason that inasmuch as they had never seen a sample of death, they could not possibly know what he meant. Neither would he nor any other god have been able to make those ignorant children understand what was meant. Without furnishing a sample, the mere word could have no meaning for them, any more than it would have for an infant of days. Presently, a serpent sought them out privately and came to them walking upright, which was the way of serpents in those days. The serpent said the forbidden fruit would store their vacant minds with knowledge. So they ate it, which was quite natural, for man is so made that he eagerly wants to know. Whereas the priest, like God, whose imitator and representative he is, has made it his business from the beginning to keep him from knowing any useful thing. Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, and at once a great light streamed into their dim heads. They had acquired knowledge. What knowledge? Useful knowledge? No, merely knowledge that there was such a thing as good, and such a thing as evil, and how to do evil. They couldn't do it before. Therefore, All their acts up to this time had been without stain, without blame, without offense. But now they could do evil and suffer for it. Now they had acquired what the church calls an invaluable possession, the moral sense, that sense which differentiates man from the beast and sets him above the beast, instead of below the beast, where one would suppose his proper place would be since He is always foul-minded and guilty, and the beast always clean-minded and innocent. It is like valuing a watch that must go wrong above a watch that can't. The church still prizes the moral sense as man's noblest asset today although the church knows God had a distinctly poor opinion of it and did what he could in his clumsy way to keep his happy children of the garden from acquiring it. Very well, Adam and Eve now knew what evil was and how to do it. They knew how to do various kinds of wrong things, and among them one principal one, the one God had his mind on principally. That one was the art and mystery of sexual intercourse. To them it was a magnificent discovery, and they stopped idling around and turned their entire attention to it, poor exultant young things. In the midst of one of these celebrations they heard God walking among the bushes, which was an afternoon custom of his, and they were smitten with fright. Why? Because they were naked. They had not known it before, they had not minded it before, neither had God. In that memorable moment, immodesty was born, and some people have valued it ever since, though it would certainly puzzle them to explain why. Adam and Eve entered the world naked and unashamed, naked and pure-minded, and no descendant of theirs has ever entered it otherwise all have entered it naked, unashamed, and clean in mind. They have entered it modest. They had to acquire immodesty and the soiled mind. There was no other way to get it. A Christian mother's first duty is to soil her child's mind, and she does not neglect it. Her lad grows up to be a missionary and goes to the innocent savage and to the civilized Japanese and soils their minds, whereupon they adopt immodesty they conceal their bodies they stop bathing naked together the convention miscalled modesty has no standard and cannot have one because it is opposed to nature and reason and is therefore an artificiality and subject to anybody's whim anybody's diseased caprice and so in india the refined lady covers her face and breasts and leaves her legs naked from the hips down, while the refined European lady covers her legs and exposes her face and her breasts. In lands inhabited by the innocent savage, the refined European lady soon gets used to full-grown native stark nakedness and ceases to be offended by it. A highly cultivated French count and countess, unrelated to each other, who were marooned in their nightclothes by a shipwreck upon an uninhabited island in the 18th century, were soon naked, also ashamed for a week. After that, their nakedness did not trouble them, and they soon ceased to think about it. You have never seen a person with clothes on. Oh, well, you haven't lost anything. To proceed with the biblical curiosities. Naturally, you will think the threat to punish Adam and Eve for disobeying was, of course, not carried out, since they did not create themselves, nor their natures, nor their impulses, nor their weaknesses, and hence were not properly subject to anyone's commands, and not responsible to anybody for their acts. It will surprise you to know that the threat was carried out. Adam and Eve were punished and that crime finds apologists unto this day. The sentence of death was executed. As you perceive, the only person responsible for the couple's offense escaped, and not only escaped, but became the executioner of the innocent. In your country and mine, we should have the privilege of making fun of this kind of morality, but it would be unkind to do it here. Many of these people have the Reason and faculty, but no one uses it in religious matters. The best minds will tell you that when a man has begotten a child, he is morally bound to tenderly care for it, protect it from hurt, shield it from disease, clothe it, feed it, bear with its waywardness, lay no hand upon it, save in kindness and for its own good, and never in any case inflict upon it a wanton cruelty. God's treatment of His earthly children every day and every night is the exact opposite of all that. Yet those best minds warmly justify these crimes, condone them, excuse them, and indignantly refuse to regard them as crimes at all when He commits them. Your country and mine is an interesting one, but there is nothing there that is half so interesting as the human mind. Very well. God banished Adam and Eve from the garden, and eventually assassinated them, all for disobeying a command which he had no right to utter. But he did not stop there, as you will see. He has one code of morals for himself and quite another for his children. He requires his children to deal justly and gently with offenders and forgive them seventy and seven times whereas he deals neither justly nor gently with anyone, and he did not forgive the ignorant and thoughtless first pair of juveniles even their first small offense, and say, You may go free this time, I will give you another chance. On the contrary, he elected to punish their children all through the ages to the end of time for a trifling offense committed by others before they were born. He is punishing them yet in mild ways? No, in atrocious ones. You would not suppose that this kind of a being gets many compliments. Undeceive yourself. The world calls him the all-just, the all-righteous, the all-good, the all-merciful, the all-forgiving, the all-truthful, the all-loving, the source of all morality. These sarcasms are uttered daily all over the world, but not as conscious sarcasms. No, They are meant seriously. They are uttered without a smile.